Welcome to Compliance Beat, the podcast for compliance and ethics professionals. We provide practical insights and answer your questions about compliance and ethics. Together, we'll stay up to date on current trends so that your program stays effective. Brought to you by Moorhead Compliance Consulting. Here's your host, Eric Moorhead. It's that time of year again. We're putting up the Christmas decorations, getting over our end of the year holiday fog and starting to get back to our work. And it also is time for me, as I did last year, uh, to kind of look forward into 2018 and put together a couple of ideas of items that I think are going to be of utmost importance to those of us in compliance and ethics over the next year. Um, As I did last year, I am going to talk about some overarching trends. Uh, these things are things that are ongoing to a great extent and, and things that we've been dealing with for a while, but also some, some things that are going to be, I think, new in 2018 uh, that we all need to be uh, thinking about and preparing for. Um, as always, uh, I appreciate everybody who subscribes to the podcast. Uh, I appreciate everyone who uh, takes the time uh, to contact us and ask a question, make a suggestion for a future episode, uh, anything like that. Please uh, don't be shy. Uh, get in touch with us, and you can find contact information on compliancebeat.com or moreheadconsulting.com. Uh, the first area that I want to talk about Um, And I think this is a particularly important year, um, here at the beginning of the year anyway, uh, for for, for, for organizations and compliance officers to pay close attention to specific compliance topics that are going to have a serious impact. The first one that I want to talk about, uh, first I'm going to throw out a date and see if this means anything to you. And that date is May 25th, 2018, or maybe more properly, 25th May, 2018. Well, if you, that doesn't immediately uh, bring to mind uh, data protection, uh, then I think there's probably an issue that you need to be looking into. And that's what's commonly known as GDPR, or the General Data Protection Regulation. This is coming out of the European Union. Uh, why this is important is, uh, as we all know, or many of us are already aware, there are strong uh, data protection rules uh, and laws throughout the various uh, European Union countries. But what the GDPR does that the prior data prote- protection directive, which came out in the 90s, has been updated periodically since then. What this new regulation does is it supersedes the prior uh, directive, but also uh, applies even in countries that don't adopt specific legislation. In the past, and this is very broad, but in the past, uh, when the directive, uh, the data protection directive or any other directive came out, there had to be corollary uh, legislation in the various member states of the EU. That's not the case with this GDPR, which will come into effect in May. It's going to be effective for all of the member states. So any data uh, that involves uh, citizens of those member states or travels through those member states 
or has a, a connection that's going to bring it within the uh, the purview of this directive uh, is going to be affected. And this is important to note. There are some significant changes, and I probably will do a podcast here in the not-too-distant future uh, diving in a little bit deeper for those of us that aren't a data protection uh, specialist or, or deal with that on a day-to-day basis uh, for, the, for, for our audience. But uh, just for the purposes of trends and important things in 2018, I want to lead with that because I think that, that this is likely an issue uh, that many organizations have not addressed yet, particularly small and medium-sized organizations that don't have uh, a data or privacy uh, uh, expert or, or, or somebody who's specifically responsible only for data and privacy. Uh, if this is one of those many hats that you wear as an assistant general counsel or chief auditor or uh, head of human resources, uh, in those organizations where uh, compliance and privacy and data protection all kind of filter into one one office or one person um, where you don't have uh, a business model where uh, data, data protection and and uh, privacy is something that is a daily issue, um, then perhaps this is something that hasn't really come up uh, and and um, been been clearly uh, illuminated for you yet. And I think that it's important that we all pay attention, no matter what size organization we work for, no matter what industry we're in, uh, no matter how tenuous we think our connection to the European Union or those member states of the European Union might be. Um, first of all, uh, most, and we've talked about this before, most organizations, no matter what size you are, you have uh, resources and services you use, uh, many services in the cloud, whether that be your email provider or your, uh, your, your database that's in the cloud or your uh, FTP site that's in the cloud. Well, where are those resources located and what has that um, vendor that you're working with done to ensure that they are in compliance with the GDPR and other appropriate uh, regulations that, that apply uh, to storing and, and moving and uh, uh, being responsible for data? So even if you don't internally deal with this data, it's highly likely that you have a vendor or several vendors uh, where you're purchasing services or um, uh, purchasing capacity that involves, potentially involves uh, some issue here. Uh, If you're selling a product or service and some of those products and services may or may not be sold to uh, individuals or organizations in the EU, or organizations or individuals that have connections to the EU where their data might involve EU uh, citizens, then uh, potentially you're going to have issues there. That might be mailing lists, that might be sales lists. It's important to understand, and and again, I'm going to do a whole podcast on this hopefully in the not-too-distant future, but the primary difference between what those, those of us that are based in North America sort of understand around privacy, including data privacy and data security, uh, our fundamental understanding of privacy uh, differs from the the, uh, the, the, the the way that privacy is undertaken in the European Union and other parts of the world in this fundamental way. Uh, you can think of it this way, and I think I've mentioned this before, but this is the fundamental difference. We are an opt-out society in the United States. And in other words, if we remain silent, 
we might find ourselves on many, many lists. <laughs> and we might find ourselves solicited for many, many uh, services. Uh, think of it, for example, the no-call list uh, that, that uh, is uh, kind of gone by the wayside in the last few years because so many people don't have landlines anymore. But if you are old enough to remember the no-call list coming online uh, 10, 15 years ago, uh, you had to go and put yourself on the list, put your phone number on the list so that you would not receive solicitation calls. That's different from the general perspective. And there are some, um, uh, there are some exceptions to this, but the general perspective in the EU and elsewhere is that you are an opt-in culture. And in other words, they have to affirmatively say yes you can use my data. Yes, you can keep my data or you can use it for this particular purpose. And even more importantly, and this is something that the GDPR gets into, uh, if, they get, if you receive permission for one use, that is not a uh, permission to use it for all uses. So that every step of the way, every use, every transfer, um, th there's, there's, there's the necessity to get that opt-in, that affirmative response to use the data. So that's a very different perspective. I mean, it's, it's 180 degrees uh, in, in most respects. Uh, so it's important, if you haven't thought about this, to kind of sit down with the blank sheet of paper in front of you and say, okay, where are the areas where we might be uh, potentially collecting, moving, uh, uh, accessing uh, personal data? And and, and is it possible that that personal data is going to include organizations, individuals uh, in the EU countries? Or, and, and I should say this too, uh, to keep in mind, there are other countries around the world, Singapore, for example, that have simil similarly different and, and stricter privacy rules than the United States, for example. So it's worthwhile here at the beginning of the year um, to 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 take a look at GDPR and how that's going to impact you because it's going to happen pretty quickly. It may be that your exposure is relatively limited depending on how uh, large your organization is, what your reach, uh, whether you're working with European um, organizations, what kind of data you're collecting or have access to. Uh, but it's worth considering. It's worth looking at your vendors um, and, and other um, uh, partners where you may or may not have access or they may or, not, may or may not have access to your data as well. So keep that front of mind. Another specific topic topic that I want to mention, and this is on everybody's mind, and I think that this podcast is going to go up uh, on Monday the 8th, uh, which is the day after uh, the uh, Golden Globes uh, here in the United States, uh, the, the uh, broadcast went out. Uh, major topic at the Golden Globes and uh, throughout uh, Hollywood this uh, last half of year, half of the year, has been uh, harassment, um, and uh, that's a topic that's gone well beyond uh, Hollywood here in the United States and has become an issue that many organizations are taking a hard look at. Uh, one thing to keep in mind is uh, harassment is a a compliance risk topic that covers pretty much any organization you can think of. If you've got more than two individuals, uh, two human beings that uh, work for your organization or uh, 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 come into contact because of your organization, there is the potential for harassment. I I think it's it's harder it's hard to think of a uh, compliance risk that is more universal, if you will, than harassment. 
Um, because it is in the news, uh, you can expect uh, that the uh, board of directors, the audit committee of the board of directors, uh, the executive uh, uh, the executives in your organization are all going to be asking questions. So you should be prepared anyway uh, to talk about what the organization does to prevent, train, and monitor uh, conduct that falls under harassment. Um, it's an opportunity because it's so in the news and uh, front of mind for so many people to have uh, perhaps a renewed discussion, renewed communication effort, re renewed training effort around harassment in 2018 because it's going to be top of mind with so many people. Um, you're probably going to see more uh, inquiries. You're going to see more traffic on your helpline and hotlines. You're going to see more questions being asked because it's, again, something that's in the news. Uh, so I think that this is a good time at the beginning of the year uh, when you're contemplating what you're going to do and how you're going to marshal your resources uh, to have a plan on how you're going to address uh, harassment in the new year. Uh, it's a good opportunity to perhaps do an assessment uh, either internally or externally on how your organization handles harassment. It's an opportunity perhaps to do a small survey if you have the capacity to do a small survey or that have the capacity to hire somebody uh, to do a small survey to try to get uh, some feedback from the population about these issues, about the prevalence uh, of, of certain conduct, about uh, the um, ability or f or the perception of the employees com about coming forward, uh, seeking assistance, uh, and remediating these things. It's it's an opportunity, uh, in, in other words, more than anything else, for you to go back, take a hard look at what the organization has done in the past few years, and what you might want to do to plot out the future for harassment. And again all across the board, uh, training, communication, your policy, your procedures, your monitoring system, um, and uh, again, taking the opportunity perhaps, perhaps to collect some data uh, around what's going on and what the perceptions are in your organization, uh, and maybe uh, benchmarking that data uh, to what other organizations are seeing with regards to those perceptions. It's going to be front of mind of uh, people at the top of your organization. It's going to be front of mind uh, for the rank and file who are probably going to be asking more questions or at least having these questions in their mind. Uh, so you need to be prepared. I think those are two key issues that uh, are going to be important uh, as far as specific risk topics go uh, in, in the new year. And I expect that all organizations should have at least taken some time to think through those two issues, uh, and how the organization has responded in the past and how you plan to respond to it in the future. A second area that, um, I, uh, six weeks ago, I probably wouldn't have added to this list, but I think it's important now because of what happened in December. And that's uh, keeping an eye on guidance from, in particular, here in the United States, the Department of Justice. Um, about two or three months ago, the Deputy Attorney General announced that it was his intention that the department was going to uh, do away with, consolidate, um, and revise a lot of the informal statements that have been made over the last few years uh, regarding uh, criminal enforcement uh, for organizations, amongst other things. And that's going to encompass uh, how the Department of Justice views compliance. Uh, 
Uh, we talked about at the time that, uh, and, and, and that consolidation was then going to take place in what's known as the U.S. Attorney's Manual. Uh, if you'll listen to my podcast uh, last week, uh, I talk a little bit about the most recent changes to the U.S. Attorney's Manual, and there's some links there uh, to the U.S. Attorney's Manual if you, manual if you want to check it out. Um, when this was suggested uh, as the new course, uh, we I, I said, along, along with a lot of other commentators, like I said six weeks ago, that I thought this might uh, take some time, that there, the, you know, the, the traditionally uh, updating and revising the U.S. Attorney's Manual is not something that happens uh, quickly. Uh, well, we got an early Christmas present in December in that the what was known as the FCPA pilot program was uh, brought in and, and uh, included in the U.S. Attorney's Manual. Now, does that mean that they're going to continue to revise uh, in, 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 in a quicker fashion than what we expected? No, not necessarily, but I think it's important to keep uh, keep. Uh, paying attention to what the department is doing here because it's entirely possible that they will. Um, if, uh, if they do make revisions, it's also entirely possible that that's going to affect the expectations around uh, what an effective compliance and ethics program looks like. Um, I don't expect that the department will do anything within the U.S. Attorney's Manual that's going to conflict with the standards in the sentencing guidelines, the seven hallmarks of an effective program. But I expect that they could do what they've done uh, in the past, which is enhance and build upon those building blocks from the sentencing guidelines and add other uh, requirements and expectations that are more specific. Uh, they could also build on concepts such as the risk-based approach that we've been talking about for the last few years that is uh, rife throughout a lot of these informal statements that the Department of Justice has made over the last few years that now potentially are going to be codified in the U.S. Attorney's Manual. And again, why this is important is because unlike those informal statements, this, uh, the U.S. Attorney's Manual, is uh, a, a, a document that's not going to go away, that isn't going to be easily rescinded. Uh, an example of this would be here in the last week, uh, uh, Attorney General Sessions uh, rescinded what was known as the Cole Memorandum, uh, which had to do with the prosecution of crimes uh, related to marijuana. It's just gone away. And so that's a relatively easy thing for uh, the Attorney General or a Deputy Attorney General to do, is to simply uh, say this memo is no longer in force. Memos come and go. Memos get revised. Uh, it's more permanent uh, and more um, uh, substantial, if you will, for that guidance to be codified in the U.S. Attorney's Manual. It takes a little bit more effort to go in and revise, change, or delete things from the U.S. Attorney's Manual. That is not to say that it doesn't happen, because it happens, but it's less frequent uh, and it's more apt to be permanent. So, I think if this is a trend, if the changes in early December to the U.S. Attorney's Manual regarding uh, FCPA uh, carry over to other issues around compliance, uh, then we can expect those, um, those expectations to be something that's going to be around for some time, and those expectations to be the final word, if you will. 
uh, compared to other more informal statements that have been made uh, or presented over time. Now, do we know this is going to happen? No, but we didn't know that the pilot program was going to be codified in the U.S. Attorney's Manual so quickly either. So I think uh, here in 2018, uh, a trend that we need to pay attention to is not just what happens with the U.S. Attorney's Manual, but watch very closely what the Department of Justice, the SEC, and international uh, regulators, whether that be the uh, the Ministry of Justice or other uh, regulators in the UK or uh, regulators in the EU or, or anywhere around the world. I think that uh, a trend this year might be uh, sort of catching up with some of the informal guidance, certainly here in the United States and maybe elsewhere, uh, that touch on compliance issues and having a more formal uh, uh, process and more formal um, exposition, if you will, of those standards. So pay close attention uh, to what's happening uh, around guidance because I think that uh, 2018 might turn out to be a year where, you, where we have more formal guidance around expectations. So uh, let's keep that in mind. A third thing that I want to talk about, and this is something I talked about uh, also last year and throughout the year, uh, I still see it quite a bit. Um, I, I think it's this is another issue that's driven quite a bit by the news and what's going on in the world, uh, in particular here in the United States. And uh, I'll admit, because I'm here in the United States, I, I am influenced uh, by what's going on here. Uh, probably uh, more than than uh, compliance and ethics professional on the other side of the globe, but uh, what happens here sometimes does affect uh, things throughout the world. Uh, one of the trends or 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 talking points, if you will, for the last uh, year since the new administration came into office is deregulation, is uh, trying to uh, um, unfetter business uh, to a great extent. Uh, that's certainly the way uh, discussions have happened. Uh, what's interesting about that, though, is, is if you look at uh, uh, what the Department of Justice has been doing, in particular uh, around issues like FCPA and and just generally, uh, there doesn't seem to be um, uh, a significant change in in the uh, prosecution of crimes uh, by organizations, the prosecution of business crimes, there's still a focus. Uh, the prosecutors haven't uh, uh, stopped doing their jobs. The regulators have not stopped doing their jobs. And we don't expect that that's going to happen anytime soon. So my concern uh, is more of a cultural and messaging concern. And this was my concern last year, and it remains a primary concern for me this year. And I think it should be a concern for all compliance officers is making sure that there's a, a maintenance of respect for the rule of law, <laughs> maintenance of respect for the fact that uh, regulations still apply, um, a maintenance of the respect for uh, uh, being compliant and following the rules of the organization and keeping a, a culture of ethics. Um, I think that uh, there are a couple of ways to combat this. Uh, uh, and and I think for most organizations, they've done a good job uh, keeping uh, compliance and ethics front of mind. Is uh, you know first and foremost identifying potential issues uh, where perhaps uh, there's a misunderstanding or uh, an eagerness uh, to avoid controls, uh, avoid uh, organizational rules, or 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 even in some cases the law. 
um, to to uh, increase performance. I mean, that's always there. That tension is there no matter you know what the administration, uh, uh, a particular government administration is saying. That that tension and that that um, pressure remains no matter what. So we need to continue to combat combat that. Uh, I think the other thing, uh, another important um, thing to do uh, when you have uh, such a large uh, megaphone talking about deregulation and about unfettering business is to talk about uh, continue to to develop the narrative and continue to talk about how uh, a, a positive ethical culture, a compliant culture, is actually beneficial to the bottom line. That there's a there's a business case to be made for compliance and ethics. That this is not just uh, a bunch of rules trying to uh, uh, keep the um, uh, commercial part of the business down. Know um, that in fact. Uh, compliance and ethics uh, works with all of the other important aspects of the organization uh, to keep and maintain the company's position and also grow business. Um, we need to uh, continue to evolve our discussion around compliance and ethics and make the business case for it. Um, make the business case about how not having issues allows us to uh, focus on business and not miss opportunities, uh, continue to talk about how a positive ethical culture attracts top talent and maintains top talent. If you have, a, for instance, a culture of harassment, you're not going to be able to do that. Uh, you're going to lose people. Uh, you're not going to be able to recruit people that are the top people that you need. Um, so those are two uh, important issues to keep in mind uh, uh, when you're discussing the importance, the bottom line importance of compliance. But there are many other, and, and there's other podcasts, if you go back through the um, through the catalog over the last year, where I've talked about business case, and I'll do it again here in the future. So I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time going into the details here, but and they're different for every organization. But make a business case. I think um, if there's an antidote to... Uh, uh, w some of the narrative that's going on about uh, avoiding c controls, of, uh, that uh, regulation is going away, that means it's Wild West again. I think there's thankfully not been too much of that kind of talk going on. But where it's happening, I think the best way to combat that is to, is to make the business case. Um, I, you can certainly make the case that uh, uh, enforcement has not gone away. The, the data does not support that, uh, again, prosecutors have not uh, stopped prosecuting cases. Uh, so, so the data supports that, there, that the enforcement is still strong. But I think a better argument to make, uh, a, a more compelling argument, and certainly in many cases a new argument that, they ha that, the, that the audience hasn't heard before, is making the business case. And so I would encourage organizations, encourage compliance officers to become, to have, uh, develop a, a, um, a line of attack around why compliance uh, uh, supports the commercial uh, aspirations of the organization, how compliance and ethics uh, makes the organization better and more successful. Because uh, you can make that case, uh, not only in recruitment and retention, but, but on many other issues. Um, so it's it's worth doing that. So those are three kind of bro broad, but I think important things to think about. 
Uh, first, there's some of those specific topics I mentioned, and there are other specific topics. Um, I, I think the first of the year is a good time to kind of sit down and think about what specific compliance topics you want to train on, what specific comp compliance to topics you need to perhaps focus on your controls, your monitoring, uh, what, what uh, uh, try to get some data from the field as to what the perceptions are around those things. Uh, the second uh, important thing uh, to keep in mind, a trend, if you will, this year is guidance. I think uh, given the relative quickness that uh, uh, the pilot program was turned around and, and brought into the U.S. Attorney's Manual, uh, it would not surprise me at all if here in the first quarter we saw some, some further changes that impact uh, corporate compliance uh, within the U.S. Attorney's Manual. So uh, keep track of that, but also keep track generally of guidance. Uh, coming out of both uh, the United States and, and other um, uh, regulators around the world. And then lastly, uh, pushback. I think it's important to have a narrative around the business importance of compliance and uh, make sure to maintain uh, the, the, uh, the business importance of a, compliance, a successful compliance and ethics program, uh, even if the narrative, uh, certainly the national narrative in the United States and perhaps uh, seeping around the world, is that uh, the, the foot is off the pedal, so to speak, with regards to enforcement. Uh, number one, that's, I don't think that's true, but number two, whether it is or not, uh, we don't want to be the test case. Uh, so we need to maintain our program, and there are good, biz solid business reasons to do so, and you need to be able to uh, articulate that in an effective way. So those are some ideas. Um, there are certainly several other things I think that are going to be important. I am going to, going to come back to some of these here in the, in the following weeks as we head into the new year because I think they're important. Uh, we're going to have some guests here, I hope, uh, in the next few weeks that are going to talk to some of these specific issues that are going to be important as we head into 2018. I uh, hope that it's going to be a great year. I think 2018 has uh, the potential uh, to be a, a really important year for compliance and ethics. Uh, we're becoming more mature each and every year. There's some significant changes that are going on, um, there, but the expectations uh, of, of the stakeholders for all the organizations we work for are also changing, and, and uh, the expectations are high. Uh, the expectations are high not only from uh, the regulators that we've been talking about, but, but the expectations of all the stakeholders, our clients, our customers, uh, the public at large, uh, those continue to go up um, and I don't see any change in that in the future. Those expectations will remain high, and we need to keep the expectations high for ourselves. So uh, please subscribe if you haven't already. Uh, please get in touch with us if you have questions, comments, uh, suggestions for the future, um, and uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to Compliance Beat. Check out our website, compliancebeat.com. This podcast is brought to you by Moorhead Compliance Consulting. Be sure to check us out at moorheadconsulting.com.